Well, I wouldn't like you to think me particularly odd, but before I got married in 1984, um, I didn't have a stag do, which are all these very common these days. Not even a night, never mind a weekend in Prague or anywhere like that. And that didn't seem to me, anyway, that uncommon in those days. I was taking the step of getting married with a complete mixture of trepidation and hope. So it seemed more appropriate to have a time of rather nervous, sober reflection than a party. But never mind. But living now, as I do, next door to the hare and hounds and opposite the Greek vine. (laughs) If anyone wants to do a house share, they're welcome. Um, I receive frequent reminders that some of the biggest changes in life circumstances, particularly getting married, are now preceded by dressing up, limousines, drinks, and shrieking at the top of one's voice in that order. It's clearly a formula that works, though. Yet it's not necessarily typical of how we might approach the biggest moments in life. I mean, having a baby is, seems to me, preceded by receiving a grandmother's advice, countless trips to mother care, maybe NCT classes, a change in career direction. Seldom is undergone without research, coffees or two with a valued confidant, um, a discussion with a parent or partner. Often changes in our life circumstances can bring out the instinct in us to prepare carefully, think it through, as well as to enjoy the excitement that it holds. Or if we're Christian, we pray. Now just before their marriage, there's a wonderful moment in Only Fools and Horses, when Raquel, who is to become Del Boy's wife, is talking about her favourite film, Her favourite film being that old black-and-white wartime classic, Brief Encounter. Now, Del being Del, he curries favour with Raquel by saying his greatest moment in that film, which he also loves, is when the spaceship lands and all the aliens come out. (laughs) Now, he's, of course, thinking of close encounters, not brief encounter. Now, I have to be honest and say that the passage that we just heard from the Bible that Diana read, the transfiguration of Jesus, sometimes seems to me a little bit like watching a one-minute extract of close encounters, a spaceship landing, in the middle of a romance like Brief Encounter. It almost seems a little bit out of place, almost as though due to an editing error, It appears about ten chapters too early in the Gospel of Luke. Something rather otherworldly in the middle of a situation that's generally rather easier to relate to. But that's not the case. And the reason why I hope will become clear as we explore this unique passage together this morning. Over the past seven weeks it is now, we've been looking at extracts from Luke's gospel, one after the other, and this is the last one in that series. And we've been doing that because Luke offers us the most carefully researched picture of Jesus' life and identity, and brings to the fore moments that reveal his identity and purpose as God in human form. And that, in turn, helps us to get to know him, whether we're already Christians and way down that road, or whether we're just here in church by accident. 
And although this series has been quite short and interrupted by holidays for many of us, it suffices to say that Luke has demonstrated Jesus' identity in lots of ways. His power over nature, for example, in the calming of the storms, over evil when Jesus drove out demons from the demon-possessed man, over death, the daughter of the man called Jairus, and over sin and wicked and sin and uh, sickness, the sinful woman. And walking alongside Jesus, as the apostles have done through that time, has been enough of an experience to make Peter, their leader, declare, as we heard last week, that Jesus is the Christ, the one through whom God had promised to save the world. That declaration happens early in Luke chapter 9. And Jesus takes it as his cue to let the apostles into a secret. Because he says, just as God promised, I am indeed the one who will suffer, die and be raised to life and will come and reign in glory in the everlasting kingdom of God. Now, all of those words sound great, but as we're fond of saying these days, what would that look like? Well, what follows is an example of what it would look like. It follows in Luke 9 and the passage that we just heard. And it is like a sneak preview of that glorious reign. It's like a trailer appealing in the, appearing in the interval of a motion picture or a private view of an art gallery that's yet to be fully open to the public. It's all of those things. But for Jesus himself, it was a bit more than that as well. Because at this particular point in the gospel retelling, Jesus stood at a crossroads in life and his mission. Because he knew beyond it lay his betrayal and death on the cross. So it was time for he and his apostles to do three things that will form the basis of my talk to you this morning. To stop, to take himself away and be with his father, to look for the apostles and ourselves through them to behold the glory that awaited Jesus beyond the crucifixion, and to listen. For us to hear from God that we're to listen to Jesus, the uniquely chosen one. Those three steps, stop, look, listen, are contained pretty much in that order in Luke 9, 28 to 36. If you want to look at it as I'm speaking, it's on page 1040. And we'll follow it under those three simple headings. Firstly, stop. Jesus believed in stopping. Because stopping for Jesus always involved prayer. And prayer always involved getting closer to the Father. Elsewhere in Luke's Gospel, he prayed when he was being besieged by people seeking healing. He prayed for the apostles on three occasions in the Gospel. He even prayed when he was teaching other people how to pray. He prayed at his baptism. And his father spoke at his baptism. He prayed on the eve of his crucifixion at Gethsemane. And his father gave him strength at that moment when he most needed it. And he prays at this time too. 
this crossroads when he took Peter, John and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. And when Jesus prayed, God the Father moved. As I've said, he prayed at his funeral and God spoke. He said, at that time, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And at Gethsemane, on the eve of his crucifixion, God showed Jesus something. An angel appeared to him and strengthened him. And at these particular crossroads, before the moment of transfiguration, God did both. He showed Jesus something and he spoke. And both of these things happened because Jesus stopped. Because stopping meant prayer and prayer meant that God moved. Now, I don't know about you, but I sometimes stop. Stop the pace of life. I stop and catch up with a friend over coffee. I stop and watch a bit of sport on television in the evenings. I stop and read the paper on Sunday nights. And sometimes I really stop. You're encouraged to stop when you're doing jobs like I do. And in our ongoing ministry too. And when that stopping involves a retreat, which can be up to a week in length, or longer for some people, I tend to find out what stopping's really like at those times. Because listening to attentively to the voices in one's head and clearing oneself of those distractions so that we can attend to what God might have to say to us is really difficult. I find that I've got at least 24 hours of rubbish, 24 hours of rubbish noises in my head to clear, to unscramble before I can be on a level to approach God and be really attentive to him. Sometimes longer, but never less. Yet when I do unscramble and really stop, his voice is more clear at those times than at any other. Now you may think that that type of stopping is impractical for you. You may have less rubbish to unscramble than I have. But I do urge you to sometime stop. Or plan to stop. Or help someone else to stop, at the least. Jesus did. And while he was praying, having stopped, what happened, the blessing that followed, defies easy description. God showed him and the apostles something. We'll turn to our second point. Look. Well, what did the apostles see and report through Luke? Two main things. Firstly, they saw Jesus change. The appearance of his face, we're told, changed. And his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. His appearance changed. This wasn't a picture of a future Jesus, but a transformation in the present tense. And that brightness recalls the brightness that was seen in Moses as Moses descended from Mount Sinai with those tablets of stone having met with God 
where it's reported that his face was radiant because he'd spoken with the Lord. Jesus changed just as Moses had done in the presence of God the Father. The other thing that the apostles saw, they saw two men, didn't they? They saw Moses and Elijah in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. And they spoke, we're told, about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Why Moses and Elijah, of all characters? Well, for a clue to answer that, we look to the only other place that they appear together in the Bible, which is in the book of Malachi, the prophet, in chapter 4. And God speaking through Malachi of the final day of judgment when the wicked will be trampled and the son of righteousness will heal those who revere God's name. And on that day, at the end of that chapter, it says, we are to remember the law of Moses and Elijah will be sent before that great and dreadful day to reconcile all children to their fathers. So, in other words, because of that passage, that reference in Malachi, that representation of the final day of judgment, those two men are forever associated with the last day, the day of judgment. And they're speaking, therefore, to Jesus about his departure and the road to the cross that runs for him beyond the place where he now stands. And because of his cross, those who follow him will be saved on that day of judgment. And his departure, which they're foretelling, his literally exodus, is to become the equivalent for you and I of Moses saving the people of Israel. Now, if the apostles sensed half of this, their vision of Jesus, his place in history, his glorification by God, their vision will have been so much larger of what Jesus was here to do. So how do they respond to all this? Well, I think they can be forgiven for thinking that they were actually present at the end of time. They're clearly in awe of all that they've seen. Why shouldn't they be? And Peter offers words to Jesus. He manages to rustle up It is good for us to be here, which is a little more, a little like saying nice weather we're having, really, in the context of what was happening. And he offers to put up three tents, doesn't he, for Moses, Elijah and Jesus. It's rather quaint. He recalls the Feast of Tabernacles, a sign of God's provision and judgment. But we're told they still did not understand. I mean, at a superficial level, the scene seems to kind of depict a hall of biblical fame, Moses the bringer of the law, Elijah the prophet and herald of judgment day, and Jesus the Messiah, the saviour. Quite a lineup. So perhaps Peter and his pals are thinking, well, let's honour Jesus. He's moving in exalted company these days. Let's put up some tents and honour those whom the Father has glorified. But their understanding did fall short. Their vision was bigger. But the thing that they'd missed was the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. And it was into that uniqueness that God the Father was about to speak and bade them listen. So we'll come on to that in a second. But let's for a moment just dwell on the idea of Jesus being revealed in glory as he is. A couple of verses later. They saw his glory, we're told. Now glory... 
is a difficult word. It means very different things to different people. I mean, to me, glory, if I, my mind conjures up lifting a trophy at an FA Cup final. It conjures up a child with a great set of exam results. It conjures up showing friends around a new home or the satisfaction of a promotion at work or something like that. It's a moment of being singled out, of being put in the spotlight, of receiving some recognition, especially if that recognition has been pretty hard won. Jesus' glory is greater than that, though. We can be sure of that. His place in history is greater as the one who ultimately will set all of his people free. His place in God's favour is the highest. He's the one that God has chosen and with whom he is well pleased. And his suffering is deeper as the one who without sin, who might have been praised to the heavens, yet who died in the most humiliating and worst way possible. And yet who undergoes a unique resurrection. He alone defeated death. So his hand on history is a single grip. It is unique. Jesus had stopped. The apostles had seen. And finally God spoke and bade them listen. The final point now is about listening. Well, the voice that had spoken at Jesus' baptism and said, you're my son with whom I'm well pleased, spoke again. This time echoing words that Moses had earlier prophesied. And God says at this time, this is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. And as God the Father speaks, so the cloud which had descended as he began lifts. Moses and Elijah had peeled away to one side to leave Jesus alone and glorified, the Son, the Chosen One, unique. Now, unique, I think these days, is a pretty difficult concept for us to grasp and hold on to. Because we live in a world where Jesus is often ranked alongside Gandhi and Mandela. Or religious figures like Muhammad and the Dalai Lama. An occupant of one of a whole row of tents. But the world doesn't really need a clash of figures with competing claims. Because here is the point of the transfiguration. It's a unique and divine declaration that a saviour for the whole of humanity exists. And that that is Jesus. And one day, the transfiguration reveals. He will show himself with all of the glory that was shown on that mountainside. One day, he will show himself in all of the glory that was shown on the mountainside. So, with that uniqueness, God says to the apostles, listen to him. Well, why wouldn't we? But how? I mean, it's easy saying we should listen to him. But how might we listen? Let me bring things towards a bit of a conclusion by highlighting a few ways we might listen. First, our listening and our prayer go hand in hand. 
Because God speaks to us by his spirit in the space around and between our prayers. In the words that we form, however failingly. The silences that fall before, between those words. In the events of each day, the places we go, the people and the natural forces that shape our days. God speaks to us. And we listen most closely when we stop and give attention to him. Sometimes we hear him as a friend because there's nothing wrong with that because he loves us. Sometimes we hear him as wise. Well, that's good too because he knows so much. But one Christian friend told me this week that when she prays, she approaches him as she might approach a throne. And visualizes the throne that's described so beautifully in Revelation 4, which is worth looking up incidentally. And in that way she hears him, as we might hear a ruler, with authority, power and justice. Our listening might be friendly, might seek his wisdom, but it should also have that kind of reverence, that deep respect for the one that God has glorified. Second, listening to him means taking his word to heart and living alongside him. So as we face the big moments in life, whatever they are, decisions about marriage, career, family, death, We need to have a way of listening and reflecting on God's word that applies to those decisions. That informs them. That interacts with them. Not a slavish thing, but a way of helping us interact wisely with the world. Our listening has a reflective quality rooted in God's word. As he has spoken, we listen. And if we do those things, our listening will shape values in us that don't chime happily with the world around us. Our own morality, our own personal sense of right and wrong will be shaped by our listening to God. If we understand him, his will, then our decisions about life, death, time, money, relationships and the planet will be shaped by something distinct and unique. And we must be prepared for our listening to him to change us. I'll conclude now by saying that the apostles that were present at the transfiguration on the mountaintop, had stopped, as Jesus had led them to. They had looked and seen his glory, and they listened. They didn't understand all things immediately, but as time went on, they came to understand. And we know that, at least in Peter's case, because he reflected on the events of the transfiguration in his second letter at the end of the New Testament. And it has three postscripts written to arguably three different groups at the time. And speaks into those of us today who puzzle over the transfiguration. And Peter speaks to the skeptics then and the skeptics now and says, 
We didn't follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And Peter writes, for those for whom Jesus may just be one occupant of a row of tents. Good but not unique. Peter wrote, He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And Peter wrote, For those called to listen to him, that we now have the word of the prophets made more certain, and you will do well to pay attention to it, as to a light shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. He wanted the word of God to be listened to and to encourage us and to renew us as a morning star rising in your heart. So let us pray as we get ready to continue in prayer and considering responding to these words. Let us pray that the morning star may continue to rise in our hearts until his glorious light one day shines all around us. Amen.